Well, let's continue looking at the Exodus. It's kind of the focal point of the series of events that we've been looking at. We've kind of been looking at events leading up to the Exodus and including the Exodus. And chapters 5 through 18, we're going to see the defeat of Egypt in the book of Exodus. This is basically an outline of the book of Exodus here, which is going to lead us to another implication. Number one, implication, fulfillment of the covenant. Number two, judgment and grace. Number three, this is what God is doing. He's revealing himself through these plagues, through the judgment. And before, even before they became a nation, God is explaining this in Deuteronomy 4.34. We have some commentary. 4.34, or has a God... Notice it's uncapitalized. Has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials? Has God ever done that? There's no account. No account in all of the empires of the world of a God taking a people, a nation, from within another nation by trials or plagues, by signs. This also interprets what God is doing. They're signs. They're revealing certain things. And wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors. These are terrors to the Egyptians. As the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So it was visible to the Egyptians. It was visible to the Israelites. What God is doing, he's revealing himself. Then verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other beside him. Every Israelite was born and raised under the Egyptian culture, understanding and knowing and perhaps even believing in the Egyptian gods. And God has to demonstrate to them that he is superior to all of the Egyptian gods. So to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is no other besides him. So let's take a look at these plagues, because they are revealing and glorifying God. And before we do that, let's look at another passage. Let's look at Romans Romans 9. Mark, look up Romans 9, verses 14. A long passage, but I don't think we'll read the whole passage. Just start reading, and then I'll probably stop you. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this was very for this very purpose I raised you up. This purpose I raised Pharaoh up. Here we have a New Testament commentary on the passages we're looking at. To demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Okay, he'll expand and talk a little bit more, but that's the main verse that I wanted you to see there. There's the divine interpretation by the New Testament. What God is doing with the plagues and with the Exodus is demonstrating at least power. And from the Deuteronomy passage, he's also demonstrating that he basically is Lord and greater than all the Egyptian gods. So the plagues are refuting the gods of the Egyptians. 
And every one of these plagues is related to specific gods of the Egyptians. So when God brings these plagues, it shows that God is sovereign over the natural realm, not these gods, and God can bring them. These gods do not have control over the physical phenomena. And there's a multitude of gods. Osiris, pictured on a throne here. Egyptians coming, bringing sacrifices and homage and bowing down. And this is pretty typical in Egyptian art. Isis, one of the female Egyptian gods, pictured like a, an eagle or a bird or some sort of bird. And each of these others have significance, much of which I don't know all the details. And we have all these other gods of the Egyptians, just to give you an example, and some of these are related to the plagues. Osiris was the god of the Nile. The Nile was viewed something like the bloodstream of a human being because all of life came as a result of the Nile. So Osiris controlled the flow and the flooding that produces very fertile soil. So they worshipped Osiris. And what's the first plague? The water turned into blood. And not only that, but it made the water putrid. What's going on? Can't Osiris control this? God announced to Pharaoh that this is what he was going to do. The God of the Bible, the, the Yahweh, said, this is what I'm going to do. And it was demonstrating to Pharaoh, Osiris has no power. God is sovereign over the natural realm. Remember one of the plagues, plagues of the frogs? There was a God called Hecht, who was basically in the form of a frog. So one of the plagues showed that that God had no power, that God was greater than that God. Another plague of the gnats or insects or however you translate those texts, there was another god related to them. Like I said, at least 80 of them have been identified. And over cattle or beasts, Ptah, another god. They worshipped cattle. They worshipped animals. The boils. Remember we had a plague relating to boils. Well, we have another god. Sekhmet. Hail. Nut. Another god. Darkness and light. In fact, Ray controlled light and darkness and Horus. So God's going to bring darkness to show that he is superior and sovereign over light and dark because he can bring darkness in the middle of the day. So he can bring hail, he can bring boils, he can kill beasts, he can bring gnats, all of the, the plagues. These are not all ten of them, but it gives you a feel how they're related to the gods. And that's what God is doing, demonstrating that these gods are, in fact, no gods at all, no power. So he's refuting the Egyptian pantheon, refuting the gods of the Egyptians. And we read the passages that make it clear that he's showing his omnipotence, the omnipotence of Yahweh. He has all power. All power resides in the God of the Bible. Thirdly, each of these plagues destroyed different aspects of the Egyptian economy. If you can imagine losing all our crops in the United States. Say, God, we're bringing plagues on the United States. And in Egypt, he destroyed all the crops. And on another occasion, he destroyed all the fruit trees. So now there's nothing to eat. This is destroying the economy of Egypt. 
and you have all of these dead animals that uh, were putrefying. So it's disrupting this stable culture. We could even say that it probably destroyed the entire Egyptian Middle Kingdom. Now, I'm going to talk about chronology later on, towards the, the end of our discussion on Egypt here. And in that discussion, I'm going to show that uh, the Exodus probably took place at the end of the Middle Kingdom, rather than where it's placed by the secularists. Let's look at a couple of passages relating to God's omnipotence, and let's look at a couple of passages that also show that the Egyptians saw this. 8.19, Mark, why don't you look up 9.20, Exodus, and... Yeah, a couple of passages there. Randy, why don't you look up chapter 10, verse 7. And since you're in 10, read 15, and I'll give you chapter 11 as well. Connie, 8, 19. Okay, the Egyptians themselves recognize we can't go against this. This is the finger of God. Egyptians are recognizing this. 9.20, Mark. Stay in chapter 8, Connie, because I'm going to have you read another one. The one among the servants of Pharaoh, who feared the word of the Lord, made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. Yeah, they believed, they believed what Moses predicted here. And these are Egyptians. So they're recognizing the omnipotence of Yahweh. Now, in terms of destroying the economy, Connie, read uh, 8.16. Throughout all of Egypt, in other words, all of Egypt is involved here. Ten seven. Do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? All of Egypt, recognized by Egyptians themselves. Read verse 15. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land started, and they did eat every bird and all the trees. Yeah, notice all the fruit, all the land. And there remained not any green thing in the earth, and the field will grow all the land. Okay. And we could read each of the plagues, for example, the when the Nile was turned to blood, it speaks of all of the fish being destroyed. When it spoke of the frogs... The, the frogs and the land, again, it's all of the land. When the insects, I think we read that one, all of the land. And in chapter 9, verse 6, speaks of all the livestock. So it's talking about the entire economy. Fruit trees, all of the fruit trees. So when you read the plagues, notice this universal language in terms of the entire Egyptian culture. And when I say it possibly destroyed the Middle Kingdom, because after the exodus... Not only was the economy destroyed, but what else was destroyed? The leadership and, more importantly, well, no, the entire army. Remember, the entire army was destroyed during the Exodus. And notice what Joshua 2, 9 through 11 says. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Yes, this is Rahab giving the view of the uh, Canaanites, 
and not just in Jericho, but in general. Word spread about the Exodus such that all peoples recognized that God did a miraculous work in history, and they were terrorized. They knew that the Lord has given you the land. We'll look at this when we talk about the conquest. And that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And then in verse 11, down towards the end there. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The Canaanites were fully aware of what God had done as a result of the Exodus. This is why God had the children of Israel simply obeyed, continuously could have relatively easily conquered all of the Canaanites. Because they were paralyzed. So the plagues and Exodus itself not only destroyed the Middle Kingdom, but delivered and enriched the nation of Israel. Remember when they left? They got gold, they got silver, they got all kinds of possessions. Because the Egyptians said, get out of here, get out of here, 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 take it, go, get out. And that enriching enabled them to survive partially. Obviously God provided manna and other things, sustenance. But that enriched them such that they could survive during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. And the text tells us that 603,550 Israelites men were involved in the Exodus. These are adult men. And if you include uh, women and children, somewhere between two to three and a half million people, depending on how many kids they had, that's the Exodus. And relating to the Exodus, another implication we can draw, it shows us that salvation is by grace. We've already mentioned that. But we see it vividly illustrated in the Exodus. The children of Israel were more content to stay in Egypt I mean, they grew up with an Egyptian mindset, an Egyptian worldview, stability, don't disrupt things. Even though it's oppressive, at least we're eating, at least we're surviving, at least we're multiplying. But, so, but God wants to intervene to deliver them in spite of themselves, and thus it's by grace. So let's take a look at another foundation, an area that we have a foundation for what we might describe as, or theologians call, soteriology. What is soteriology? The doctrine of salvation. And why do they call it this strange name? Why do they call it soteriology? Now, you know the ology part is the study of, but what about the soter part? Well, it starts out. So, 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 No, you got the right word, but, yeah. To save in Greek is so-so, so it deals with salvation. Soteriology, and we have, now salvation doesn't begin here. We've already seen, even with Adam and Eve, God provided salvation. But I think we have a vivid example in the Exodus, where God is dealing corporately with the nation to save a nation, to deliver from bondage a nation. And always, like everything else, it's always initiated by God, 
And when we say it's initiated by God, in terms of Israel, it goes all the way back to Abraham. And when we speak of salvation, we could say that uh, Abraham is an example, and I mentioned this last time, of the idea of God selecting or choosing. Theologians call that the doctrine of election. And uh, listening to the tape and getting emails probably wasn't as clear as I would have liked to have been on that. Let me make a couple of comments. Uh, this doctrine is a little controversial and a little difficult. And what I gave you is a very, very minority view. Expand what I said last time. And then we'll move to number two here. I would just refer to what I said, but since it wasn't clear, I'm going to add a little bit. So let me just clarify by saying the doctrine of election is one of the most controversial in the church. And what I presented to you, and I'm not expecting you to necessarily believe it, because it's within evangelical circles, it is minority, and it's somewhat the Calvinistic, more, more Calvinistic view. Not that I'm totally Calvinistic, but I believe that Calvin had a lot of things right, and I think this is one of them. So you may disagree, and that's, that's fine. You won't flunk this course. No, it doesn't equal it. Oh, okay. It's closer to foreknowledge, which but it's related to both. And I'm going to explain that now. That's why I wrote all this on the board there. My view of salvation is that it's a total work of God from start to finish. And Bible seemed to indicate that it begins with this idea of God choosing, and I use the central passage of Ephesians 1.4, where God chose before the foundations of the world. In other words, before we even exist, before there was a universe, God already had, because he's omniscient, he already knew all parameters, he knew everything that was going to take place, he knew everyone that would exist, because he is the creator, and he, in eternity past, chose some. And I don't go to the extreme. In fact, the Bible doesn't talk so much, so I kind of don't say much about God passing over some. But that's kind of a logical conclusion. The Bible is clear on election. And that's where we, where people have a problem. Is God passing over some? It seems like it's unfair. But my view is that God selected some, not on the basis that the common doctrine is that God selected, as Mark kind of indicated, on the basis of his foreknowledge, seeing ahead, okay, you, Connie, you're going to believe, I choose you. But my problem with that is that puts the whole thing into your choice and into your arena, rather than God being the initiator and God being the one that's sovereign over the whole process. So... In a sequence, this is the way I see it works itself out. And I should have put over here, man totally depraved. In other words, with no ability whatsoever to respond to God. He's dead, Ephesians 2.1. Dead in his trespasses and sin. Dead in terms of responding. In other words, he can't do anything. He needs for God to intervene. And I see the whole process beginning with election, God choosing, and then from that, God sovereignly working through history. I should have put predestination right here. Like I said, this is, this is a minority view, but I want you to be exposed to it. Because it's the truth, you know. 
So we have God choosing some, passing over others. God foreknowing everything. God's foreknowledge. That's another biblical word, theological word. And yes, God knew who, are, who was going to believe, but they believe because God is working a work to complete what he started in eternity past in determining those that he has chosen that they would eventually come. So predestination is God working in time all the circumstances so that those that he has chosen would in fact hear the gospel and be in a position to be able to hear what God says about what it takes to be saved. So he works all those circumstances, putting you in the family, putting you in the the country, putting you in a circumstance, and it doesn't matter which country. It could be the deepest of Africa. God's going to send a missionary over there. All right? So predestination is God working out circumstances to get the gospel to you. He calls you. In other words, he... In a variety of ways, through the gospel mainly, he is calling those that he has chosen to himself. And there's specific verses to all of these, by the way. I'm just giving you a thumbnail sketch here. So God calls those that he's chosen. And, in fact, whose turn is it to read? Read Romans 8, I think it's 30, somewhere in there. So God calls. John 6 says that God draws people to himself. And no one comes to him unless God draws them. So that kind of almost at least implies that unless God draws you, he's passing over some and not drawing. He doesn't draw all. Because only those that he draws actually come. If you want it, John 6.44. There's another verse like that. And in this whole process of calling and drawing, the gospel convicts us of sin so that we recognize there's nothing I can do to please God. Convinces me I am guilty before a holy God. Convinces me convinces me that I am lost. Convinces me that I will spend eternity apart from God. I may not know all of it and have a clear understanding of all of it, but I sense I am in a hopeless situation. There's nothing I can do. The gospel also illuminates me. In other words, it opens my mind that there is a way of salvation and there's only one way. And it's only in in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, in what God has promised concerning the Messiah. So he opens my eyes. That is the only way, that's the only hope, is Jesus Christ. And he is working all of this in the life of those that he initially chose. And that Romans 9 passage that I mentioned when it speaks of the example of Jacob and Esau, it specifically says it was it was before they had done anything. In other words, it's not like God is saying, oh, okay, Jacob is going to be the good boy and Esau is going to be the bad guy. So it's not in terms of what we do. God chooses by his sovereign will and plan. And we have no idea who he has chosen and who he has not. So from our perspective, we share the gospel with whomever and everyone. And by the way, the gospel is the means of two things. The gospel is the means by which God brings people to himself by convicting them or calling them, drawing them, convicting them, illuminating them. But to those that God has passed over, it's also the means by which everyone stands accountable before God, by which he has a reason to to judge them and reject them. You heard the gospel, you understood enough, you rejected it, you are... 
And after we are convinced, then we exercise faith. Another controversial concept is I'm inclined to believe that God even gives us the faith to believe. And there's a couple of passages that indicate that. And from man's perspective, he is hopeless, he cannot do anything, but if he is one of the elect, then God has worked all of this and brought him to the point where, okay, I, I know that I, there's nothing I can do, I'm hopeless, I can't do anything to please God, God, can you forgive me? Yes, in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. I believe that Jesus died for me and my sins and I can be saved and receive a relationship and eternal life with, with God. And then once we believe, then God puts us through a process of sanctification where we are involved in this process of sanctification that ultimately when we go to be with him, he completes the whole process of this total work of God, the glorification. Does that make sense? You at least understand what I'm what I'm trying to communicate? So in contrast, the more common and the more popular view is that God chooses for knowing those who will believe, and on that basis, he makes his selection, and in time, when that person believes, then God works the rest of it. Now, it's not that they deny all these other parts of the whole process, but I think in the package, I see the work, that of God, beginning with him, uh, and we have no idea what basis he used. He simply chose. And from our perspective, I also mentioned last time, we need to keep in mind, God is not obligated to choose any. He would be perfectly just to pass over and, in fact, judge everyone. And it's simply by, but it's by grace that God chose anyone. And there's no unfairness that he passes over some. That would be the view that I take. Make sense? Okay. So, it's a, a soteriology, or the foundation to salvation. It's initiated by God, and it begins with the example of Abraham. I used Abraham as an example. I also used Jacob and Esau as an example from the Romans 9 passage. It's decreed by God all the way back in Genesis. Do you remember what passage? Decreed? 3.15, exactly. Very good. So, God had already with Adam and Eve's sin, had already determined to send a Messiah that would ultimately deal with evil and that would ultimately be the basis of salvation. Thirdly, we have the depravity of man that began with Adam and Eve, and we've been studying the progress of sin throughout. After Adam and Eve, we saw the second generation, the first son is a first murderer. And there's a corruption that continues all the way to the Genesis flood. God intervenes, starts over with Noah, brings judgment, salvation. Noah is saved, so he's dealing with evil. So soteriology is worked out, but we always have the depravity of man. We're going to have the depravity of man all the way to the end of world history. I mean, we won't see it, but if you read Revelation chapter 20, I see that as a, the millennial kingdom. That era, that thousand years, is the last era of world history, in my viewpoint. Revelation 21 is the eternal state, or what we normally call heaven. Revelation 21 and 22. And at the end of Revelation 20, do you remember what we have there? The nations rebel. (laughs) Rebellion. Yeah, you could have guessed it. And then we have the great white throne judgment. That's the final event of world history. Great white throne judgment.
So the depravity of man, man continues, man is helpless. He cannot save himself. All through world history we see man attempting means of salvation apart from what God has set up for man. There's always false religion. And soteriology, again, salvation is received by grace only through a response of faith. And faith is not a work, it's a receiving, it's an accepting of what God has provided. And oftentimes it's in the midst of those that are being saved resisting. Now, Holland, being raised in a Christian home, probably heard the gospel very early and didn't resist as much, but I'm sure she had times of rebellion in her babyhood. <laughs> so we're always resisting those that became believers as adults. We have all, you know, all that time frame where we may have heard the gospel but never responded to it. And it's illustrated in Israel as well, in this Exodus account and others as well. And we've already seen it also in the, the, uh, the patriarchs, particularly Jacob and his sons. So it's received by grace, through faith, in spite of man's resisting. Number five, salvation. In the Bible, there's only one way. Only by means that God has provided. And it's through sacrifice. Remember all the way in Genesis 3? God provided the first sacrifice to provide the skins, the covering. Fifthly, we said last time it includes the imputing of righteousness. And what we mean is God grants to us righteousness. This is positional. God has views us as totally righteous, even though we still have a sin nature. But by position, we are treated and we are viewed as perfectly righteous. Now, there's an experiential aspect I mentioned last time where we grow to be more and more conformed to his image, but God views us positionally as totally righteous. That's why I say by position. Number seven, God, those that receive his salvation are protected. So I also believe in the doctrine of eternal security, and God does that sovereignly. He protects us. And the process of protection also involves the sanctifying process where he continues to conform us to his image. And Loretta, she always likes the animals, so number eight, it includes creation. God is going to restore the entire creation, and much of the creation is restored in the millennial kingdom. So it's not just spiritual, it includes the physical realm as well. God is going to reverse the effects of the fall, totally. And remember, I emphasized some of the effects of the fall includes the natural realm. And in this case, in terms of Egypt, it includes the plagues, includes the natural realm. And God is, in, is using these plagues in order to save the nation of Israel, to get them out of, of Egypt. Okay, so there's your foundation for salvation. And I haven't been keeping track. How many of these have we covered? Several, right? Gives you an idea of what I'm looking for in, in the paper that you guys are writing. And in your paper, you just expand each of these and show from biblical passages where you're developing a foundation to the area that you're studying. So, implication number one, the Exodus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, or at least a 
the next phase of God's working out the Abrahamic covenant. It involves, secondly, judgment, and it also involves grace, which we've seen in other salvation accounts or examples of salvation. The plagues and the exodus, God is revealing himself to not only the Egyptians, he's revealing himself to the Israelites, because they're basically Egyptian. That generation grew up there. This is all they know. So their mentality is an Egyptian mentality. So God has to reveal himself or glorify himself. And it also implies, number four, salvation is only by grace, because there was nothing in these Israelites that was pleasing to God. Number five, here's an interesting foundation that we can develop, a foundation of liberty. Foundation of liberty. And by the way, our forefathers had a good concept of this foundation, and our nation was founded basically on the concept of liberty, that we're losing that. So the reason I give you this is because we're living in a culture where we're losing liberty, and we, we can know why, and and we can know where it comes from. So here's your foundation for liberty, number one. And it always goes back to God. We are created by God as free. No one was more free in the history of mankind than Adam and Eve. They were free in every way that you can conceive. They were free to fulfill all that God had called them to do, and to do it in ease and in pleasure, and experience great fulfillment. So they were totally free. But you can guess the next one. Number two, what happened to that freedom? Partially, it was lost by sin. And when I say lost, I mean partially, not entirely. So, man was not created in bondage, he was created free. Secondly, that freedom was lost by the first sin of the first man and the first woman, so sin limits liberty. So a culture that has more sin in it is a culture that needs more controls and more laws and more things that restrain, and as a result, it limits freedom. That's where we're at today. So... Culture is not what destroys or limits or restrains liberty. It's sin, ultimately. Culture just responds to the sin in the culture. Thirdly, from uh, the Tower of Babel, number three, we can see that it's distorted by the selfishness of man. We saw that, the emphasis of the Tower of Babel. The self-centered culture. Let's make a name for ourselves and implying we are rejecting what God has revealed to us in terms of filling the earth. So the more selfish an individual is, the more selfish a culture is, the more limits to his liberty are called for and usually enforced by culture. But this distortion is not of God. God wants us to have freedom. God has designed us to be free. In fact, it's an inalienable right according to our Constitution. Number four, government tends to oppress and tends to limit freedom. That's why our framers tried to do everything they could to limit government, to limit it, to allow more freedom. But even the framers recognized that our government only works when you have a moral and godly people. So the less godly, the less moral they are, 
the more you need government to suppress evil. And government in itself tends to be oppressive. Now keep in mind, government is a divine institution. God's the one that instituted it. And its design was, in fact, to restrain sin. But in the process of restraining sin, those that run government tend to want to acquire more power. So it becomes oppressive. So it's not laws that are bad, but it's the concept of trying to attain more power that becomes oppressive. And lawmakers use laws to affect their expansion of power. Now, what we're going to see, we haven't got to this yet, but when we talk about law, we'll, we'll talk some more about this next. The next major event will be law, or the events around Sinai. We're going to see that liberty, and in fact, what God gave the children of Israel, his word was designed to give them freedom, the Israelites' freedom. So number five, we could say that liberty is maintained by God's word. So God's word is not intended to be legalistic. It is intended to promote liberty, including the law, the, the law of Moses. Number six, we'll look at this later after we look at the law, but I wanted to mention kind of ahead of time to show where we're heading next. The Exodus, interestingly as well, another implication that I observe is that it gives us a foretaste of future judgment gives us a foretaste of future judgment. If you study the book of Revelation, and I've, I've exegeted the book of Revelation, and one thing that I've noticed is the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, many of them are very similar to the judgments that we have in the plagues. There, there's some very similarities. The one difference is the plagues that we have in the book of Exodus are limited to the Egyptian country and geographically it was limited to that location of that culture. During the Great Tribulation, the trumpet judgments, if you want the specific verses, we won't look them up, but you can write down Revelation 8.7, 8.12, Revelation 9.3. These are the trumpet judgments. They're very similar to some of the specific plagues first Egyptian plague is reflected in Revelation 8.7. The fourth plague is reflected in 8.12. The fifth plague in 9.3. So I'll let you look those up. And what it appears that God has done in Egypt is shown what he can do in a limited way so that when we're thinking of the future in the book of Revelation, we just have to think, God's going to do this on a worldwide basis. And if he can do it on a limited basis, what's, you know, why should he not be able to do it on a broader basis in terms of worldwide? So when you read the book of Revelation and you look at the trumpet judgment, you can think in terms of God's going to pour out some of these plagues. In fact, some of them are called plagues. The bold judgments are called plagues. These plagues are going to take place worldwide. So it's going to encompass all peoples, all nations in the future. That's why it's such a terrible time. And also the bold judgments. And we ought to kind of get a feel for it. Mark, Revelation 16. I'll let you read all of those verses there. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on earth, and became loathsome and malignant sore, 
on the people who had marked the beast and worshipped his image. Two, okay. Malignant source. What do we have in one of the plagues? Boils. Read verse three. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Okay, not just the Nile. Here's the oceans turned to blood. Verse four. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Okay, kind of an addition. Not just the oceans, but now spring water. In other words, fresh water. Skip to verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became dark, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Okay, it's so dark that it's painful. I can't imagine what that means in terms of how can something be so dark that it's oppressive and painful. But again, remember the fifth plague was God obscured the sun and it became dark in the middle of the day. This is worldwide on the kingdom of the beast. And by the way, the bold judgments tend to focus on the kingdom of the Antichrist. The trumpet judgments are a little bit more broad, but they're just as severe. So we have a foretaste of future judgments in the plagues preceding the Exodus. Well, that completes the portion where we've looked at the specific passages and looked at the, in this case, a cluster of events surrounding the Exodus, events like the plagues that lead up to the Exodus. But the Exodus is kind of the prime event there. And we drew the implications from these events, so that portion we've completed. And let me conclude the Exodus by looking at the apologetic aspect. I didn't give you a separate sheet on that one. What I want to demonstrate here is that there's a conflict in the secular world and the Bible, basically. And the the main conflict deals with the Egyptian chronology. So I want to give you a little background and data on the Egyptian chronology. Because a lot of the events of the Bible just don't fit into the secular view, and as a result, the secularists don't even see that an exodus took place. So as a result, they deny the existence of an exodus. And those that would even acknowledge it would say that it was so insignificant that it doesn't show up anywhere. And a lot of work has been done recently that that shows a more conservative view of events. And by the way, most of archaeology, most of the secular historical area, uh, pretty much accepts and uses the traditional Egyptian chronology to set the chronology for all of the other cultures. So if that chronology has some flaws in it, and I'm going to try to demonstrate that it probably does, then all of the chronology of ancient history is is messed up. And I already showed you that we can't have cultures that are represented in archaeology because of the Genesis Flood. All cultures have to start after the Genesis Flood. Now, I'm not saying the chronology that I've laid out is necessarily inspired, but I've said it's the most conservative, and some would expand it a little bit, but not enough to fit the secular chronology. So, the first thing that we can talk about here is there is a conflict with a secular Egyptology in terms of chronology, 
in relationship to the biblical chronology. Secondly, there is a need to reinterpret that Egyptian chronology. There are some uh, Bible believers that have done some work in Syria, and I'm going to give you the results of some of their work, and I'll mention some of their names. They're relatively unknown, and there's been some recent books that have brought some of this forward, and I'll, I'll give you some of those references, and you can buy some of these books if you're interested in it. So let's take a look at reinterpreting Egyptian chronology. And if this is done, and there's still some problems, in other words, we haven't resolved all of the historical problems and issues, and but the result of this work, you can fit not only the Exodus, but a lot of other events into a better chronology historically, but especially the Exodus, because that's kind of the focal point. I gave you a chart with Abraham, I think, that kind of, I'll show you that chart again. It'll make a little bit more sense here. Number three in our apologetic, Exodus coincides with the end of the Middle Kingdom. That's key. Most secular scholars and even conservative scholars that follow, because even conservative scholars accept the Egyptian chronology. Again, this is a very small minority viewpoint. They put the Exodus, it just doesn't fit in the traditional chronology. It just doesn't fit at all. So in the Egyptian chronology, there's a, an old kingdom, there's a middle kingdom, and there's a new kingdom. And they stretch them out. In other words, they are more sequential. A revised chronology has some overlap and co-regencies of some pharaohs. Because of the time frame, from our perspective, there's a need to condense the time frame. Because the Egyptian chronology goes before the Genesis flood, the uh, secular one. So, the new kingdom is the zenith of political power in the old system. And that is where the secularists put the exodus. And there's no evidence in that time frame of an exodus. There's no exodus there. There's no evidence of one. There's no mention of any disruption, nothing like that. There's no record of a bad economy that we just mentioned. And I tried to show you that it totally destroyed at least the economy of that particular dynasty, whichever one it was. And there's no evidence in the New Kingdom of that. There's no ecological disruption of the type that we mentioned. And I said these are significant things that affected all of the Egyptian area. So, bottom line, there's about 500 years of extra Egyptian chronology. And these scholars account for that by giving some overlap. And I'll give you kind of another timeline to show some of that. But instead of the Exodus falling in the New Kingdom, it fits very nicely at the end of the Middle Kingdom. And I'll try to show you how that works out. And this new chronology, the Old and the Middle Kingdom, are essentially an overlap, and they're basically the same. The Old and the New, or the Old and the Middle Kingdoms are the same. So if we work this out, there's a correspondence with a reconstructed chronology, a correspondence between secular events, primarily Egyptian events, and biblical events, and pharaohs. There is a correspondence. And in fact, it's amazing. So, in other words, these are men that take the Bible seriously and literally. And this is a, a basic chart 
So the traditional chronology, you have dynasties in sequence, the first two very early, and they would put them before this 2800 B.C. This is a chart that I got out of one of the books. So first two dynasties very early, but notice the sequence. They're all sequential. That's a tradition. And it spreads out the Egyptian history by at least 500 years, probably more than what the biblical time frame allows. The revised chronology is this one below, and you can see there's overlap. There's overlap between the first and second dynasties and the third, at least the third, maybe the fourth, etc. See the overlap there? The work of a man, I think most of this is based on a work by the name of Emmanuel Belakowski. He was actually a Jewish scholar. And his book is Ages in Chaos, where he's done some work. And there's also another man by the name of Donovan Courville, who happens to be a Seventh-day Adventist, but has done some work in this area. Good work. Conservative work. And there's some other books. Uh, I got this out of a book by a man by the name of Downs. In fact, that's an excellent book on the pharaohs. I can't remember the name of the book. I'll have to get it for you. This is basically where these biblical events would fall in this revised chronology. Yeah, this revised chronology would see the exodus at the end of Dynasty 12. And in fact, would have destroyed that dynasty and that Egyptian kingdom. So that's basically it. So here's Babel. Here's, in fact, he's got his flood pretty much about the time frame I've got mine. Which... I showed you this chart in terms of Terah. Terah would have lived in the time of Zoser. And remember I showed you the photographs of Zoser's ziggurat or pyramid, the stepped pyramid. Abraham would have lived in the time frame or shortly after Khufu and Khafre. Those two pyramids are the, the prominent pyramids at Giza. Khafre was the son of Khufu. And these are very impressive. Those are the most impressive pyramids in the world. They were built before Abraham's time. Abraham would coincide with them. Joseph would uh, have dealings with Sosostris II. That would be the Pharaoh. So he would fit into that time frame. And that would put the exodus in the Pharaoh of Neferhotep the I. And the interesting thing, that during Neferhotep I, we have found the the mummies of most of the pharaohs. They've been discovered. This one has never been discovered. Why? He may not have survived the exodus. He would have died in the sea and not recovered and not mummified. The Semitic slaves suddenly depart. There's archaeological evidence Semitic slaves suddenly depart from a certain archaeological site, Tel Ed-Daha, and another site, which is interesting. The son of Neferhotep did not ever reign. What happened to him? He also died, 10th plague. And instead, Neferhotep was succeeded by his brother, not his son. And also, there is an Egyptian document that Belikowski includes in his writings. It's called the Lamentation of Epuwer, 
and it describes events like the Exodus in Egypt. Well, not the Exodus, but the plagues. And I'm quoting from his translation. It says, and there's references to this papyrus document, Plague is throughout the land. Blood is everywhere. Unquote. What was the first plague? Blood everywhere in the water of the Nile. He also says, the river is blood. Men shrink from tasting it. What does that sound like? Book of Exodus tells us. Also says, gates, columns, and walls are consumed by fire. Remember, fire came down. Seventh plague. He who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. What does that say? A lot of death. Tenth plague. All of the firstborn. He also says, quote, It is groaning that is throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. You see that in the book of Exodus. Trees are destroyed. All animals, their hearts weep. Animals are destroyed. This is a document that is recorded, and they date it probably close to this time frame that we're talking about. And he goes on talking about grain has perished on every side. The fire has mounted up on high. Each man fetches for himself those that are branded with his name. The land is not light. Darkness. So that's that document. It's an Egyptian one. Lamentation of Ipuwer. I-P-U-W-E-R. So back to our chart here. So the Pharaoh of the Exodus possibly could be Neferhotep I. And immediately in this revised chronology, we have the period that is described as the Hyksos. And historians all acknowledge that they take over Egypt without conquering it. How could they do that with such a strong empire, particularly the Middle Kingdom? Well, if the Middle Kingdom is destroyed, they just walk in and take over. And there's a Hyksos period. And in that chronology, the next dynasties there would be these Hyksos dynasties. No, they're a peoples. And they seem to be Asiatic. An ancient writer by the name of Manetho, concerning these Hyksos that I mentioned, he says the following, he says, Men of ignoble birth out of the eastern parts. When he says eastern, he's talking about northeast of Egypt. Had boldness enough to make an expedition into our country and with ease subdued it by force, yet without our hazarding a battle with them. In other words, there was no conflict. And he's an ancient writer, B.C., I can't remember the dates, 200 or so, reflecting on Egyptian history. And interestingly, we have an interesting pharaoh by the name of Hatshepsut, female pharaoh, in this revised chronology, would fit in the time frame of Solomon. And those that have revised this chronology feel like she could be the queen of Sheba. Sheba would, in fact, be African or south of Canaan, African areas, Queen of Sheba. So the incident of Queen of Sheba may be that Hatshepsut visited Solomon. Remember, she came with all kinds of goods, and they traded, and she was very impressed. 
And by the way, there's evidence from her reign, and I should I should have included some uh, photographs, but there's actually reliefs of this great treasure that she brought back on an e- expedition to a particular land. I can't remember how the Egyptians described it, but it fits in with the treasures that she would have brought back from Solomon. That's Sepset. Probably add it and it will be included in the website. Well, the, the Egypt of the Bible, we would say, is the inspired historical account that does not fit into the secular chronology. So what we're doing is revising the secular chronology and if we have some overlap and eliminate about 500 years of Egyptian history, or at least time, Egyptian time, then it fits that chart that I just showed you. In other words, we have amazing correspondence between what the Bible says, and particularly the, the, the kicker is the Exodus. And if you put the Egyptian pharaohs on this revised time frame, First, we have Abraham, who lived from 2135 to 1960. That's B.C., obviously. Khufu preceded him. Khafre would have followed him. And they would be both fourth dynasty. That's the four, is that, when it refers to the dynasty. Joseph sold into Egypt. Jacob to Egypt, 1845. Sesostris, the first, that would be the twelfth dynasty. Joseph died. Sesostris, the second. Joseph died in 1774, not near the founding of our country, but the other side of Christ. <laughs> Moses born, 1525. He would have been living in the Pharaoh Amenemhet III, 1525. Extending the chart, pressing it here, the Exodus, 1445. And scholars vary, some of them 1444, some of them say 1446, but... Pretty close, within a couple of years, 1445. And the pharaoh that would have been uh, destroyed would have possibly been Neferhotep I. 13th dynasty. Immediately after the exodus, we have the period of the Hyksos. That would be dynasties 15 through 17. They're not Egyptian. These are a different people. And the, the secularists said Hyksos was not Egyptian. Correct. We would agree with that. So that's your revised chronology in terms of the pharaohs and in terms of the events of the Bible. The omnipotent God of the Exodus is our Lord. So he can deal with anything in our lives. There's nothing too big that he can't handle. Pretty encouraging. Marcy, do you want to close for us? Lord, I just come to you with thanksgiving. You are so you are full of grace of your cup because you honor your word, you are trustworthy, you are that you would go with one of us, that we would really meditate on your word, the truth, through the study of your I pray that we would continue to spend time with you, be in constant prayer, and that we would acknowledge truth and repent and turn away from that drops away. I thank you for this. Amen.